Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. We are lucky enough today to have with us Chester Elton, who is a good friend of mine. He's, I've described him as, you know, he's both Mormon and Canadian, which is sort of a double bogey for being like the nicest guy that you've ever met. Like, you know, his sort of cultural background lends itself to that. And he also um, is just the nicest guy that you've ever met. Uh, He is the co-author with Adrian Gostick of The Carrot Principle and All In. He's a popular lecturer and he's an influential voice in global workplace trends. He's the co-founder of Culture Works and advises leadership teams of numerous Fortune 500 companies. He's a generally very smart, very engaging guy. We're lucky to have him. Chester, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Canadian and Mormon doesn't get any better it, than that. It really doesn't. It really doesn't get better than that. So I, so this book um, that we're talking about, I should have actually introduced it, The Best Team Wins. The New Science of High Performance, and it's uh, very much about what it says it's about, right? Which is, you know, how do you create great teamwork? How do you develop teams, especially teams that are multi-generational, that that are multidisciplined? And here's my first question, which I've always sort of, you know, in having worked with a lot of teams, have have been curious about. Uh, As I've already said, you're a super nice guy. How much of being effective on a team is based on general disposition, meaning we could create, you know, and and look at and study the best terms, but how much of it is like someone's general personality, their willingness to sacrifice the good uh, for the people around you, the general sense of caring for others, the general sense of pulling your own weight and doing hard work. I've, you know, like we've all known people who are amazing on teams and is it, is there a, is there a science to it that, that betrays that idea or is it really like very much about like you're a nice guy and you care about people. And so you work hard along with them to achieve stuff that's important to you. Yeah, no, a great question, long question. So thanks for that. Um, You know, it's, it's interesting that we had sort of five ahas when we wrote the book and it's based on a lot of research. You know, we've got a database of 850,000 engagement surveys and lots of case studies and so on. So one of the things that really popped out to me was when you're putting together a team, a lot of times we do it backwards, to, to your point. We look at the CV. We look at your experience. We look at your education. What we found in the best teams was exactly what you mentioned, is that the best performing teams and the best performing team leaders, not only did they have good technical skills. I mean, that's a given. You have to know what you're doing. But they had tremendous soft skills. In other words, they did care about each other. They did take the time to get to know each other. And especially, you know, when our first big aha was the multi-generational team. And it wasn't just, you know, diversity in gender and race or even, even, um, even generation. It was cultural background. It was linguistic. It was, are you a remote employee? Are you are all in one building? So that diversity lent itself to leaders and teams that had to take the time to get to know each other and make sure there was the right cultural cultural fit. So this idea of soft skills was a really big aha for me, that the best teams really were the nicest teams. That's great. You're a very data-driven guy. Tell us a little bit. You just mentioned it. You know, you did this research. You surveyed 150,000 people. Ground the rest of this conversation in the data. 
Yeah, well, actually, it was 850,000. 850,000. And the other piece to that was we have developed an online um, assessment for motivators at work. The, the What Motivates Me profile. And we had 50,000 people take that. And, and that, that was an earlier book that you've written, What Motivates Me. Right, right. Um, and, and I'll tell you what's really interesting about that is we were able to take that data and parse it out and take a look at motivators at work. Did it differ by generation? And not surprisingly, of course, it did. Uh, we took a really hard look at millennials in particular because now they're the biggest part of the workforce. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a baby boomer, you know, and I grew up where you know, you got a job, you worked hard, you went from the mailroom to the boardroom and, you know, you, you stuck it out, right? 30 years was not unusual. Um, now we're looking at a very mobile uh, workforce and a very uh, smart workforce. You know, I was all about, it was all about working hard, make money, get married, support your family. You know, the millennial generation, which was really interesting for us, we, we looked at the top motivators there and it was impact learning and family. You know, and I, I don't like the work-life balance idea. I like work-life harmony. I don't think with smartphones we have balance at all. You know, uh, you were just out skiing. I guarantee you there was a time when you went for a coffee and you pulled up and you were working for 10 Now, minutes. let me ask you a question about that. Do you not like that work-life balance idea because in this world it has now become unrealistic? So we're, we're giving into the lack of work-life balance or do you feel like work-life balance – is a misguided uh, drive. Yeah, I think it's a misguided drive because, you know, and I, I think most people interpret work like balance as this sort of zen. You know, I have work and I have life and I keep them in balance. I think work is life, life is work. So, you know, you, you just find some harmony. I think anyone who's really exceeded and become exceptional at anything doesn't have balance. I mean, we just went through the Winter Olympics. Do you, do you think those, you know, uh, gold medal, uh, do you think they had any kind of balance in their life? No, they were they were all in, in, in whatever their discipline was, the luge, the bobsled, whatever. So I, I think there are times in our life where we know we're going to be out of balance. So let me ask you another question. I kind of want to, because this is very interesting, and it's, it's sort of a departure from the book a little bit, but, sure. but I, 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 you know, you've thought a lot about this, and you've thought about yeah. what motivates us. And I wonder, I, I just want to ask that question about, about, you know, people who, you know, maybe I would be included in this, you would be included in this, people who, you know, like really, we throw ourselves into things and work very, very hard at them. Um, so, so you achieve things, like you could be in the Olympics, or you can write a bunch of books, or, you know, while you're doing a bunch. So you achieve things. And the question is, are we better off for that? you know, out of balance, driven, focused achievement orientation? Um, or is it some dysfunction that we're trying to make up for some insecurity and, you know, and which we end up never making up for it because you can't really make up for insecurities. You just have to kind of live with them. And, <laughs> and so like, are, are we, is it a misguided attempt at achieving something that will never ultimately be satisfying or is it a really productive, useful, uh, happy way to live? Yeah, you know, there's so many interesting questions in there, right? Because we, we say, okay, well, shouldn't family be our most important priority? And I go, yes, it should be. And part of that is, is that I'm out of balance so that I can, you know, support my family and live in a house that's got heat, which, by the way, I don't have today. Our pilot light went out. I digress. Uh, you, you know, you, 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 you've got to focus. And, and there are times when you are out of balance. You're out of balance when you're in university, right? You're studying hard. You're getting grades. And, and I think this comes back to your core values. 
you know, you, you mentioned I'm a Mormon. I have certain core values that come with that. You've got a certain faith and you've got core values. And, and, and as long as you're true to those where I say, look, I'm, I'm going to be driven to achieve because I think it's important and it's a noble cause and I want to make a difference. I'm also going to make sure that I take the time to be present with my family and to create those moments with my family so that my kids know that dad's there for them. And I'm going to I'm going to make the exception where I, I, I take time out from that incredibly driven moment to make sure that I've got time with my spouse, that I've got time with my family, that I've got time for my faith and so on. So it is it is. You know, work life it's a balancing act, but for me, it's about harmony. How do you start your day? How do you end your day? How do you make sure that you've taken the time to get all those things done without sacrificing too much in one end? Now, I will say that I don't I've never met a driven person and a high achiever that at some point didn't step back and say, I wish I'd spent more time with my family. I mean, right. we, we all have that regret, right? That's why I'm sure you took the weekend and you took your kids and you went skiing because there were weeks where they just didn't see dad. Right. So you wanted to make sure that, that you had the time. And and we do that. So I, I really do think in this hyper-connected world that there is a, a total imbalance. Can we find the harmony? I think we can, but you have to be disciplined about it. Yeah, and it actually might be the way, you know, like we might just take that drivenness. You know, you mentioned skiing. So I, I just went on vacation with my family for a week. And we didn't um, just, this is just my style. Like we didn't sit on a beach or sit in the living room and watch movies. Like we went out to Jackson Hole and skied all the steeps, you know, and kind of pushed ourselves and skied from, you know, we're up at 630 and we're, and like, maybe I feel sorry for my kids. Maybe I feel excited about it. I don't know. Like, I, you know, it kind of depends on how things play out, but, but it was a very kind of energized and maybe it's just sort of taking that again personality type and channeling it in a way that meets the various needs to create harmony. Well, and and, and you know, to get back to the book, this actually does play very well into how you build your teams because we talk about managing to the one. That old school was we treat everybody the same, right? Because that's fair and those are the rules. Now with so much diversity, you really need to know each person on your team, what motivates them, how to integrate their talents. And I think it's the same in our personal lives. You know, for, for, for some of our kids, yeah, they want to be up at the crack of dawn and, and hiking or, or rowing or skiing. And there are other kids where I just want to sit and talk to you, Dad. So, you know, and this is, was another big aha, and we've had it for years now, by the way, is that the principles that create successful teams, the, the, the principles that create great workplaces are the same principles that create great relationships and great families. You know, I, I, I have the expression, work is life and life is work. You know, the, the principles that we use to communicate better at work are the same principles we use to communicate with our spouses and our kids, right? I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think it's, and I think it's really important. So you, you were just talking about manage to the one, which is discipline number two. You talk about five disciplines in the book right. and uh, and that feels really important. It's it's uh, you know I've written an article about why I'm not crazy about personality assessments because I, I, I I'm much more interested in you know really understand being curious about people and understanding what makes them as individuals tick, which is so many variables that you can't really put them in you know in one of sixteen boxes. Um, you talk about in the book aspirational conversations in relation to this. Can you describe them? Yeah, you, you know I think traditionally it was we'd have a. a half year or a year end review and nobody liked doing them. And they were always uncomfortable because the first five minutes I tell you how great you were. And the next 55 minutes, I tell you where you needed to improve. Um, 
So the aspirational conversations, what I love about this is it's getting to know the one and where we sit down and, and it doesn't take a long time, right? It's, it's, it's 15, it's maybe 20 minutes. And I'm asking you questions like, Peter, you know, have we kept our promises to you? I mean, we recruited the heck out of you. We brought you in. We made some promises. How are we tracking, right? I'm asking you questions about, hey, what have you seen that works well at other companies you've been at or other experiences that we could apply here? You know, be innovative. Give me your ideas. And I create a safe place to do that, right? And and and, and the question is like, where do you want to be three to five years from now? You know, I, I love the question and it's a, and it's an interesting one and you have to have a lot of trust is, look, have we done anything that might cause you to leave us? Like, are you... Are you tracking, you know, the conversation about where do you want to be two to three years from now is your career path. And one of the one of the great studies we looked at was the Google Aristotle study you might be familiar with, where they looked at 130 teams over five years and said, what are the most innovative traits of these teams? Because Google's innovative. It was emotional security was the number one thing. And we found that Google, you know, engineers and whatnot didn't want to be micromanaged in their work but they did want to be micromanaged in their careers. And I thought that was really interesting. So give me the assignment. Let me do it. Let me be creative. That's so oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, the other side is I really do want to know where this is leading. You know, what, what's my career path? What am I going to learn? How am I going to grow? How am I, how am I going to develop? Interesting. I, I can hear some leaders say, you know, they're asking me to be very paternalistic. They're asking me, to let them do whatever they want to do, but then really make sure that they continue to sort of develop their careers and get all the rewards. So I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling a little stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like I have to just let them do whatever they want to do. And on the other hand, I have to like, you know, really determine and drive the success of their career. Is that a yeah. fair, oh. is that a fair ask? No, no, I, I, I think it really depends on what kind of industry you're in and what you're doing. You know, do I need people to show up and work from nine to five? I'm in retail. Yeah, that's a little different. You right. know, Google, I think, is almost the exception to every rule because they're just so crazy and innovative. Right. When you go in there, though, you'll, you'll see a, an incredible discipline. I mean, they didn't get there because they just let people take off and do whatever they wanted to do. Right. They have hard deadlines. They've got smart people. They get it. What I'm saying is, is the new reality is, is, yeah, it is a little bit. I, I don't think of it so much as paternalistic. I think it's more relational. You know, you've got to have more of a relation with your with your people. You've got to really understand. Well, and I'm hearing relational and I'm hearing trust. Exactly. Like the, what I just described to you was like a response that lacked trust, right? That right. And so it's kind of like relational along with trust that they're actually going to hold their side of the bargain. They're, they don't want to be micromanaged, but they're going to work hard and they're going to work, you know, they're not going to use the system. Exactly. And that's why these aspirational conversations are so important. And we have them frequently. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a monthly thing or, or as, whenever needed. And you keep checking back and tracking. Hey, you know, you mentioned that you wanted to be, uh, you know, you wanted to get into R&D. Well, I've got an opportunity for you to partner with some people. Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so that's, that's and, and relationships build trust. You know, old Old school was I, I kept information very proprietary. New school is it's very transparent. And that's what these conversations help do. It's very relationship based. Um, I want to take one step, a quick step back to discipline number one. You talked about it a little bit, understanding generations. And, and we sort of started out the conversation like that. And, what, and you talked about the motivation uh, survey. What I found interesting as I was reading the book is when you look at the top three motivators of the millennials, the Gen X, the boomers, and the traditionalists, and you look at the bottom three motivators, they're kind of the same. 
like the extent to which everybody changes, you know, you still have impact number one, learning number two, and family number three. So as I read that, I thought, huh, there's a story that says, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And we have all these different kinds of people, but their top motivators and bottom motivators are pretty, you know, dead on, similar. And I guess my question is, is the challenge that how these things express themselves are different by generation? Exactly. You, you hit on exactly right. Yeah, we, we, we all kind of, you know, we all want to have impact. We want to continue to learn. We want to make a difference. But the way we express it is so different. You know, with, with, with baby boomers, we tend to be very structure-based, right? With, with millennials, it's very much, you know, social-based. It's, it's sort of this new power, right? It's, 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 I crowdsource. I get a lot of people involved. I, I'm not afraid to ask a bunch of different people their opinions. You know, it's much more collaborative. So you're right. And, and see, that's the key is understanding how it's expressed, understanding how we get there. And, it's, and it's a that, very hopeful. It's a very hopeful message because, you know, understanding that oh, we actually do care about the same things, but we approach them differently is a is a bridge that can really be leveraged to create relationship between the generations. Exactly, and and so well said. I love that idea of the bridges. You know, we, we to me, it, it it always comes back to communication. It always comes back. Do you understand what I said? <laughs> you know, and we, we have these issues with our kids, right? Again, you know, work to family. Uh, my, my son, Garrett, you know, is, is so interesting. And you've had this ex experience. You know, you, you, you call your kids on the phone and they text you back. And so we, we, we set some ground rules. I said, Garrett, you know, you're out west. You're going to school. When your dad calls, pick up. You know, we, we can text back and forth. That's fine. But when I call you, pick up. And he does. You know, we, we, we've got that deal. There were some threats there about not maybe paying his tuition or his rent that I think incentivized him to pick up. But the, the point is, is, you know, how, how do we do that? Do you want to meet one on one? Do you just want to do remote? You know, how often? What's the cadence? Do you want to check in weekly or is it monthly or is it quarterly? It's, it's establishing how we communicate. And in this diverse workplace, you, you may have six or seven different ways that you're going to communicate with people on your team. It really does seem to come down a lot, each of these disciplines to communication, because anytime you're in relationship with other people and you're working to create a great team, right? The idea of this book is the best team wins. By the way, if you're just joining the conversation, I'm talking with Chester Elton about his new book, The Best Team Wins, The New Science of High Performance. Um, and, and teamwork is all about communication. It's all about what you're able to hear, what you're able to speak. And you talk about this third discipline, speed productivity, right, is, is a critical element of, of uh, you know, of, of being an effective team, is working faster, working smarter. Um, it's the, the bottom line to that seems to be the criticality of clarity. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and a lot of this has to do with how you onboard, how you hire, again, that, that cultural fit, you know, um, Old school is you had time to develop people and you could mentor. And if you weren't productive right away, you know, we had time to recover. Well, now, particularly in, in this mobile workforce where you maybe only have people for a year and a half, two and a half years, you don't have six months to get people up. So this idea of quickly mentoring, you know, one of the great um, companies that we uh, studied had this mentoring program that was so interesting. On your first day of work, you'd sit down and uh, the manager would say, uh, look, here are five people in the organization that you need to get to know. 
Now, they're not on our team and they're not even in our department, but these are people that you need to get to know because they're going to help you get things done in our organization. There might be somebody in marketing, somebody in sales, somebody in accounting, somebody in collections, whatever. And I love that whole idea of immediately breaking down silos and barriers. Yeah. It says, look. Chip Heath, uh, who wrote The Power of Moments most recently with his brother Dan, uh, he and I were talking about The Power of Moments. And one of the key elements, the the key things he talks about this book is the onboarding process, right? Which right. is so often like, here's your, here's the password to your computer. Have a good day. Right. And, <laughs> and it's, and it misses such a great opportunity. So I loved how much you talked about the onboarding process because it's really a moment that should be a moment that right. creates connection and creates direction. You know, uh, we were, we had this little, um, breakfast thing we did down in Atlanta and one of the healthcare groups was there and talked about um, creating a, your first day at work being a forever moment like that you would never forget it and and it went completely overboard you know I could just see everybody else in the room starting to roll their eyes and go like, we're not doing that but it was to the point where you know when you showed up they literally rolled out a red carpet and you, <laughs> it's awesome it's how it should be why not? Like, uh, you know, because so often we hear the horror story to your point. I came in. Uh, oh, yeah. I, look, your desk isn't ready. Your computer's not ready. Your security pass isn't ready. Uh, but we've got a stack of forms for you to fill out for your health care plan. Right. You know? Right. And, so why not? Why not? And yeah. and, you know, they would take them around and people would cheer and celebrate and they had their badges and everything was ready to go. Right. Why not. Why not? So. You know, when I think about this and I think about effective teams and a lot of what we're talking about is about relationship and, and affiliation, right? And connection. Right. What surprised me when I looked at like the, and you know, maybe we're going back to your previous book, which is also an excellent book, What Motivates Me, but it's the research that you've done around motivation is connection and affiliation didn't come up as a top three motivator. It's people aren't, you know, people are looking for impact and learning and family and maybe so they have connection with their family. But, but the idea of really being connected to the people I work with and uh, it didn't fee, it didn't show up as a top motivator, which sort of surprised me. And you look at the Gallup research that says, you know, do I have a best friend at work is a determinant of engagement. And I'm curious about your observations around that. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. You know, earlier you said uh, you had a problem with personality assessments because you didn't want to be stuck in a box. And we were very careful about that when we did this, that you're a blend. And so when you when you take your motivators and we put them in these these various identities, we called them, um, we said, look, be very careful. You're not just one thing. You're a blend of, of two or three. And and one of those is caregiver. And the caregiver is that is that relationship connection. Of course, that's where family shows up. That's where empathy shows up. And that's that's those connections. So it was very interesting as we started to work with teams and, and we used sort of the, the the assessment as a baseline to start to communicate better. Right. Right. To clarify. communicate. I understand family is important to you or social responsibility is important to you. Let's let, 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 let let's understand what we have in common what we have that are differences and what we have that are unique to up that, that communication. So, so it's there, it's maybe a little more subtle, not so much in your face, but the idea of empathy and family and, and being a caregiver is very much what you're talking about. Um, I want to shoot through these next two disciplines, discipline four and five, because we're running out of time, but I, I'm curious about this challenge, everything, right? Which is discipline four and, and any advice you have for people about how to challenge and inspire innovation through healthy discord, which is what you talk about, 
without alienating, like maintaining this thing that we're talking about, a relationship and affiliation. And I'm in a number of situations where I'm watching people saying, oh, I can't say that to that person because they'll react really poorly and then I'll lose my relationship with them. How do you, what, what advice do you have around that? Yeah, and this came from Google, this came from Bell Helicopters, from a lot of companies that we looked at that were very innovative. And you've got to set the ground rules and you talk about what the ground rules are, you know, and, and that we, you know, you have to be able to share everything. It comes back to a lot of the things that we've already talked about. Do I have a relationship? Do I trust this person? Is it safe? So we create this safe space and, and we have rules like Bell Helicopter says, look, no laughing or ridicule. We talk about ideas we debate ideas. We don't criticize people. We criticize ideas. And that's now I've, I've got a great tactic for you. I've got a, a very dear friend. He's one of the best leaders I've ever met. His name is Scott O'Neill. He works in sports. So he was at the NBA. He was at Madison Square Garden. And, and now he's with the Philadelphia 76ers and the um, and the Devils. And he loves he says, look, harmony is overrated. I want you to challenge ideas. He also has this rule that says we cheer for each other. OK, so as soon as it starts getting heated, as soon as it starts getting personal, he's got this thing he does that I love. He goes, hey, Peter, uh, I don't mind the healthy debate, but I don't get the sense you're cheering for me on this one. <laughs> That's great. So he calls it out. He calls it out and he goes, remember, it's about relationship, not task. Exactly. Or not and, just and task. about the idea. And what I love about that is like just when I said it, your reaction, everybody in the room kind of goes. Yeah, you are clearly not true for him, dude. You know, <laughs> and it lightens the moment. And you say, "Let's get back on track. What are we solving for here? How are we going to get there? Let's get back to the idea. Let's not make it personal." Now, what I also love about this is, he he says, "Look, when you look at your team, who are you cheering for? You know, people." And then he says, "Who are you not cheering for?" See, that's the tough part, right? How do you how do you how do you build a team where you know there's a misfit? You know, there's not a good thing here. How do, you, how do you work that? Because your team gets who's not pulling their weight long before you do. And they'll blame the, they'll blame the teammate for a certain period of time. But then the longer it goes, they, they blame you because you, you can fix it and you didn't. Right. So I this idea of who you're cheering for. It's great. And it also you're alluding to something, I think, which is also important, which is a certain lightness and sense of humor is important because when we start taking ourselves too seriously, then it becomes very difficult to manage the the fluidity of relationships that, you know, that that often have ups and downs and and, you know, people don't always act perfectly. And you, you kind of have to be a little light about it, too. Let's give me one sentence on this last discipline five. Now, don't forget your customers. Well, we're doing all this kind of stuff to create a great customer experience. And we've got a great uh, uh, saying. We said, look, the customer experience never exceeds the employee experience. So never forget that, yeah, if we've got a great team and great, and great kumbaya, but we don't sell anything, it doesn't matter, right? It's, it's all about getting to the customer. And, you know, I, I know we're, we're, we're kind of running out of time, but there, there's a story that we start the book with that I, I, that I love to tell. I love it. I love the story. So tell it. Chris Hatfield? Chris Hatfield, yeah, yeah, the Canadian astronaut who's basically on the back of the Of course he's a Canadian astronaut. Of course he is. <laughs> anyway, what I loved about what Chris Hatfield did is he was the commander of the International Space Station. You know, six big guys in a very small tin can for six months. And they prepared for 12 years. That's the part that really struck me. And again, multi-generational uh, team, language difference. He had three cosmonauts, two uh, American astronauts and himself. And he really made sure that not only did they train together and were they smart, they had a relationship. Well, you and, know, they, and, and where did he move? 
Exactly. He spent two years in Russia to learn fluent Russian. So the, again, back to that communication. That's no, amazing. That's an amazing part of the story. So he talks about the fact that he says, look, you know, we exceeded every goal that we set in for six months. And yes, we, 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 we were disciplined. We were smart. We knew what to do and we knew how to do it. He says the success, though, was that we had one unwritten rule. And it was this, that every astronaut had to perform one random act of kindness for every other astronaut every day. It was every day. And again, back to the soft skills. Sometimes anonymously. Well, yeah, I'll clean up. Let me help you with the calculations. I'll, I'll cook dinner or whatever it was. And he said, because of that, we never had a heated argument. We never had hurt feelings. And no one ever raised their voices. He says, because when you, when you look at it every day, what's the message? What are we communicating? I'm cheering for you. You're on my team. I care about you. I'm here for you. I love you. Those are soft skills. Even in the space station, right? That's great. That's great. Chester, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Chester Elton, his book is The Best Team Wins, The New Science of High Performance. Uh, it's a fantastic book. It's, it's, I already am thinking of people that I want to give it to. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's well worth the read. Chester, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Absolutely. Call me anytime. This was great fun. hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.